Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 26, verses 1 through 6. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, it is really good to be back with you this morning. And for those of you who have been praying for me, thank you. I had a great month with my family and feel refreshed and ready for another fruitful season of ministry. As Ben just announced, we are getting ready to celebrate 10 years of God's faithfulness to us as a church. This is going to be a great time for us this week. Uh, One command of God that gets repeated over and over and over through Scripture is Remember and rejoice. Don't lose sight on God's faithfulness in the past. Rejoice in it because that's going to be fuel to encourage you in the future. We are to be a people, consistently look back over our lives to see and acknowledge God's faithfulness to us. And all of that remembering should culminate in rejoicing. This is one way that God grows us and matures us in our faith. So Friday for the members and Sunday for all of us, it's going to be about remembering and rejoicing. But what I wanted to do to today is I want to look forward. I want to dream with you and cast a vision for what the next 10, 20, maybe even 30 years might hold for us as a church if we remain faithful. I'm titling this sermon, A God-Sized Vision for the Quad Cities. So let's pray and ask God to open the eyes of our heart to hear and believe his word for us this morning. Let me pray. Father, we humble ourselves at your feet. Ah, We trust no other words but your own, that you are truth, that you are holiness, that you are goodness, and we ask that you would teach us this morning. Father, I ask that you would think through my mind and you would speak through my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me. I ask that your people would hear your voice, that you would give us your vision for our life, your vision for our church, your vision for our city, and that you do something special in each and every single heart that's represented here today. Do this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, it should not surprise you to hear me say that we are living in turbulent times. If you are a student of history, this really is nothing new. Revolutions come and go. Nations rise and fall. Empires expand and contract. 
But when you're living in the midst of these great moments in human history, it feels like everything is being pulled apart at the seams. As we speak, it seems like two Americas are forming and could very well end up in another civil war. What are we as Christians to do in the midst of such times? To answer that question, we're going to turn to the only place that has sure and steady answers. We're going to go to the Word of God. First this morning, I would like us to turn to the book of Habakkuk. So I want you to go ahead and do that. Turn to the book of Habakkuk, or for most of us, turn to the table of contents, find the book of Habakkuk, and then find the page number there. We're going to be looking at Habakkuk chapter 2. Um, Here's what's happening, though. Before we jump into this book, especially before you just jump into a prophetic book, you have to know the context. You have to know what's going on. So here's what's going on. God's people, God's chosen people, Judah, have have left their first love, let's say, have let their faith wax cold. They are not living as they're supposed to be with God at the center. They're not living holy, worshipful lives to God. They've allowed the surrounding nations to corrupt their hearts and lead them to worship false gods, the false gods of the creation rather than the creator. So they're worth worshiping wealth and sex and money and power and all the created things. And God, looking in at this situation, in his sovereign grace, has decided to allow the surrounding pagan nations to overtake them and discipline them for their many sins. This causes Habakkuk, a prophet, a righteous man, to have some serious issues with God. He gets upset. He's basically upset because in this scenario, God seems unjust. He's like, he's raising his hand. He's going, okay, God, I know we're sinners and we've done some bad stuff, but those guys are a lot worse. So why are you allowing people that don't worship you at all to come overtake us and discipline us? This doesn't seem right. So what does Habakkuk do? Habakkuk climbs up into the city's watchtower, the tall place in the city meant to look out for incoming enemies. And he has a one-on-one conversation with God, and this is what God says to him. Habakkuk 2, 1 through 4. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me, God. And what I will answer concerning my or what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk's got an issue with God. You're letting these pagans overtake your people. This doesn't seem right. And this is what the Lord said. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. So he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. Look, but the righteous shall live by faith. He's saying, trust me in the midst of this. Trust me in the midst of this. God's response to Habakkuk's cry is twofold. He says, first, 
write down the vision that I'm going to give you so that he may run who reads it. What, is this, what does this mean? An army needs a marching order. A people needs a vision to compel them to know which direction to march, which direction to run. So God says to Habakkuk, write down the vision I'm about to give you. Secondly, he says, have faith that God knows what he's doing and he will not fail you. I know this looks bad. You're about to be overrun, but trust in God. Put your faith in God and the vision, it might ebb and flow. It might go up and down. It might look bad for a season, but he will make it happen. Then we get a glimpse of what the vision is in verse 14. Look at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The glory of the Lord refers to God's manifest presence. Now, God's glory is almost impossible to define. It's like trying to define beautiful. Can you do that? I know I can't, but I know it when I see it. God's glory is the going public with his beauty, his perfection, his holiness, his nature, his grace, his word. When God makes himself known, he's displaying his glory. And so what God, the vision for, the vision that God gives Habakkuk is in the midst of your turbulent, confusing time. Write this down. Believe it. Trust in it. Do not lose faith. There is coming a time when everyone on earth will see me. They will acknowledge my glory. They will acknowledge my goodness. They will acknowledge my holiness. Have patience and have faith. Now, I could really stop right there. If, if we want to know our mission for the next 30 years, that's it. We are going to wait, worship, and work for the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to cover the earth. That's what we're working towards. But you know me, there ain't no way I'm leaving 30 minutes of sermon time on the table. So let's get down in this and build this vision out a little more. Here's where we're headed this morning. God is calling us to a long-term, multi-generational, county over country vision for gospel renewal as we await his return. We've got four pieces of that. We got, I want to look at this vision under four headings. First, <clears throat> it's a tale of two cities. Second, it's long-term. Third, it's multi-generational. Fourth, it's a local vision that urges us to choose county over country. We're going to go into each one of those in detail. First, it's a tale of two cities. Now, a tale of two two cities, that's the title of Charles Dickens' book set in London and Paris during the French Revolution. Another one of those turbulent times in human history where mankind got together and collectively turned their back on God. But A Tale of Two Cities is also an appropriate subtitle for the story of God, the Bible. Since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, there has always been two groups of people, two cities. 
that shape and inhabit our world. Those from the seed of Cain and those from the seed of Abel. Those who worship God and those who worship anything other than God. Augustine wrote about this as he was living in his own revolution in AD 410. After Christianity had expanded and taken over the Roman Empire, Rome was then invaded and sacked by the Goths. And he wrote this book, The City of God, to help Christians understand the times and how to live in the midst of their crumbling Christian society. Here's Augustine's book in a nutshell. Mankind consists of two groups of people those who worship God and those who do not. The nations, cultures, cities, businesses, schools, politics that do not acknowledge God as God are all united against him. Even though there's all kind of different ways to deny God, all kind of different ways, they're all united against him. They are all trying to build a world with something other than God, the true God at the center. They all want a kingdom without King Jesus. Augustine called this the city of man. And this city is destined to fall. This is why as a a city moves away from its center on God, chaos begins to erupt. This is one of the reasons that our nation's foundations are crumbling before us. But there's also another city, the city of God, a sacred city. And this city can never fall or never fail. It will culminate in the new Jerusalem, the new city, the new heavens and earth where those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will walk and talk with God and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will completely cover the earth. And right now in our city and in our lives today, God is inviting us now to leave the city of man and to put our faith in the King Jesus and live as citizens of his new city, the city of God by faith in Jesus. And a good question for us to ask this morning is, how do we know if we are citizens of the city of man or the city of God? Saint Augustine answered like this, kind of an extensive quote. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. Okay, what does that mean? The earthly city, the city of man is man-centered. They love their self more than they love God. It's built on the love of self. And anytime God would say something that would be contrary to their own desires, they pour contempt upon God and say, no, I want it my way. Okay? So the city of man is built on the love of the self. Secondly, 
or even to the contempt of God, the heavenly or the city of God by the love of God. So the love of God is the center of the city of God, the sacred city, even to the contempt of the self. So when God sends me resources and I would like as a good selfish person, I would like to use all those resources on my own needs. God says, actually, I have people on the other side of the world that I'm funneling money through you that's meant to go to Kenya to support some children. So I want you to sacrifice some of your resources and and take care of a child over there. At the contempt of yourself for the glory of God, use resources for somebody else, right? So I can't be completely self-centered. That's what the God-centered sacred city is about. Now listen, the former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter glories in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, But the greater glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. Look, the one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. Now, I want us to look at the text that I chose for us this morning that was read already. And I want want us to see both of these cities in Scripture, okay? Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 26, verses 1 through 6. Here's what God says through the prophet Isaiah. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Now, just so you know right now, the strong city, this is the city of God, okay? We have a strong city. Look, he sets up, that's God. God sets up salvation, as walls and bulwarks. So this city has God as its center and salvation, God's salvation as its walls to protect them. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Look at this. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. See, God-centered. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. But look here, here's the second city. Here's the city of man. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. So here's the deal. The man-centered city, God himself is set against, and God himself will tear it down. The lofty city, he calls it. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. So here God calls the two cities, the city of man and the city of God, he calls them the strong city and the lofty city. The strong city is the city that God is building and he is at its center. And the lofty city is the city with man at its center. It's like, if you're familiar with biblical history, Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, when the people weren't just building a tower, they were building a city and a tower and they set out to build this great city and tower. Here's why they say, express purpose, to make a name for ourselves. We're here to convince the world how awesome we are, how great our ingenuity is, how great our human power, when we put our minds together, look what we can do. This is the human city with man and man's self-glorification at the center. 
Man building a city to prove their own worth. God contrasts these two cities here in Isaiah 26. The city with God at its center is saved by God. He is its protector. God says he will keep them in perfect peace. The the translators there, the scholars are trying to help us because in the original language it says God will keep them in peace, peace. Shalom, shalom. What he's saying is God's salvation is about more than just going to heaven when you die. It's about nothing missing, nothing lacking, nothing broken, human flourishing in all things as a whole, that God will watch over them and he whose mind is stayed on him, he who has God at its center, God himself will keep you in shalom, shalom. No matter what's going on outside the walls, outside the city, God promises to be our peace and keep us in perfect shalom. But here's the deal. The lofty city isn't based on God's salvation and therefore self-salvation is the only center. Pastor and scholar Timothy Keller says this, a city based on self-salvation is a city based on the idea that you can create yourself. Self-creation, self-definition, self-justification through performance and accomplishment. Which, by the way, is the central cultural narrative in America right now. Right? You define who you are you define your truth, you define your reality, you define your gender, gender, you define your identity, and now it's all up to you to keep it up, to maintain it, and to perform, to earn the applause of others for the rest of your life. It's a, it's a self-justification pro- project that never ends, and therefore, it, is, it creates exhausted people exhausted people, oppressive people, and it creates a system of injustice. First of all, it's exhausting. Notice the contrast. The lofty city, unlike the strong city, does not have perfect peace. God keeps his people in perfect peace. But when the city is built on the self, there is no peace. Why? Here's how it is. You've been told all your life you can be whatever it is you want to be. You can do it, right? All you got to do is work hard, put your nose to the grindstone, and never quit. Get the education, get in the right circle of friends, put in the right amount of hours, choose the right profession, and everything's going to be okay for you. Or choose the right gender, or choose the right identity, or choose who you are. Here's the problem. You work your way into whatever that inner ring of success is for you, and you quickly realize that there's still hierarchies there, and you still want to grow, and you still want more, and you're still not satisfied, and then so you got to get to the next level. And what you realize, the closer to the, to the, to the top you get, the harder it is to get to the next level and the more fear you have of dropping levels and losing what you've already got. And so this self-salvation principle that our whole society is running on is, is, is just absolutely exhausting. You always have to accomplish a new thing. You always have to post some new success story. You always have to post a new selfie that looks better than the last one before it. It's 
absolutely exhausting. And this is why many of our people are absolutely overwhelmed and their mental health is destroying their lives because they feel like they're on a treadmill and they can't get off. If they get off, they immediately feel like, who am I? I haven't done anything. I haven't posted anything in 24 hours. Who am I? I don't have any value as a human being. This is what our culture has created. And secondly, it's oppressive and unjust because if the city is built on the self, it's all about me and I don't care what I do to anyone else in order to get ahead. I don't care who I step on. I'm building my personal brand. I'm building my social media empire. I'm building my business. I'm building my church. I'm building my thing. I don't care how many bodies are behind the bus. See, when, it's, when self is at the center of a city, it creates injustice and oppression. Landlords exploit their tenants and tenants exploit government programs with no thought. It's a system of injustice. So that's point one. Right here in our city, there are two cities. The city of God and the city of man. Now this begs the question, if we've put our faith in Christ and we belong to the sacred city of God, how are we to live in our city? Like there's two cities here. How is the city of God meant to relate to the city of man? Well, Jesus answered this for us in his Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, immediately, salt is different. Nobody sits down to dinner, I hope, and just eats a plate of salt. And if you do, you should be on my strange addiction, okay? Salt is different from our food right? And so Jesus here is is playing with a metaphor that you as the city of God, as Christians, are meant to be different from the city around you, meant to be different from your neighbors. You are meant to preserve, that's what salt was mainly used for, you're meant to preserve culture in a sense, preserve God's way of doing things, and you're meant to flavor the city around you, being diverse, okay? So that's one metaphor Jesus uses. He keeps going though. Here's what I could say to the Christian church today. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? The answer is gospel renewal. It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Many Christians today claim the name of Christ, but their saltiness is gone. They taste just like the world, look just like the world, act like the world, think like the world, live like the world. But Jesus goes on, you are the light of the world. Do you see what he's saying? The world is a dark place. The city of man is a dark place, full of exhausted people, oppressed people, injustice, greedy people. The world is a dark place, but you as the city of God are meant to be the light of the world. Look what he says. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, look, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He's saying, live in such a way that people who walk in darkness see the light and the glory of Jesus Christ in your life. Do good works. Live in the city in such a way that people can tell you're doing something good for the glory of God. Proverbs 11.10 says this, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. Now this should should not surprise us. Jesus did, literally, we all, if you were a Christian, you sang this, right? This little light of mine, hide it under a bushel? No. This little light of mine, move on out to the country? No. This little light of mine, create some kind of convent? No. This little light of mine, shine in the midst of darkness so people see your light and give glory to your Father in heaven. Should not surprise us. Jesus isn't creating any new teaching right here. He's just riffing off of Jeremiah 29. Go to Jeremiah 29. I'll show you. Jeremiah 29, verses four through seven. Now here's here's the interesting situation. The context of Jeremiah 29, Babylon invaded Jerusalem. And here's what Babylon's idea was. We're not gonna kill them all. That's been done many times before. What we're going to do, because we see the culture of Jerusalem, we see the wise men, we see the musicians, we see the sculptors and the architects and the philosophers, Jerusalem is killing it. So what we're going to do is we're going in and we're taking all the leading people, all the leading people of the city, we're going to pull out all these influential people and we're going to make them assimilate into Babylon. And what's going to happen is when they assimilate into Babylon, they're going to the city of God is going to come into the city of man and they're going to become the city of man. And then we're going to get all the cultural fruit of these people of Jerusalem. And so they're together, right? They're together. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live in the midst of this godly, ungodly city, this Babylonian empire as exiles? How are we supposed to live? And guess what? There were some prosperity preachers, right? This is where TBN was founded, okay? There's some some people going, listen, here's the deal. It's only going to be for a few months. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be better. Jesus is going to take you out, or God's going to take you out of that problem. Don't worry, And you know what God, and then God sends a real prophet, the prophet Jeremiah to go, they're lying, you're gonna be here 70 years. And this is how I want you to live in the midst of this Babylonian ungodly empire. That's the context. Look at chapter 29, verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent, ooh, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Look at this. Multiply there. And do not decrease. But seek 
the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Three things I want us to see from this text. What God says to his people as they're living in an, as they're exiles in an ungodly empire. Number one, move in, be a local, put down roots, buy a house. <gasps> Immediately, that, this would have shocked them. Secondly, as he's saying, I'm sending, it's almost like he's sending them as missionaries, even though they're being brought into Babylonian exile. And he says this, a straight command. He says, multiply there. Don't grow less, multiply. Don't assimilate and become just like everybody else. Keep your cultural distinctiveness. Keep your holiness. Keep your righteousness. Live there with the word of God at your center and multiply. Find a wife. Find wives for your kids. Raise your kids in this environment to grow up godly in the midst of this empire. Do not back down. Do not shrink. Raise your kids to keep the faith and be a sacred city in the midst of Babylon. It's a call to make converts. How are you going to find a wife? We're told we can't marry unbelievers. What does that mean? Go make converts. But third, shocking command. It says, seek the prosperity of the city. Shalom. Seek the shalom of the city. That means your command isn't just to live there as a little holy huddle, circling the wagons and trying to preserve your holiness. No, the calling is to make the Babylonian city of man more like the city of God. Bring reformation to this godless city. So this is why I believe God is calling us to a long-term, multi-generational, county-over-country vision. First, it's long-term. It says specifically, first off, we know it's long-term because guess what? Jesus hasn't came back yet. It's been a while. 2,000 years. He's building the city, and it's on its way, but it's not here yet, right? For them, it's going to be 70 years. Don't listen to the prosperity preachers. Don't listen to the lying prophets. He's not coming back right now, right? Every, we, every couple years, we got to say this, right? From Y2K to this, to that, to the other thing. False prophet. Jesus says, we don't know. Guess what that means? That guy doesn't know. It's going to be a long-term vision, there's going to be ebb and flow. Empires are going to come. Empires are going to fall. There's going to be revolutions. There's going to be seasons where it looks like the church moves backwards and maybe all hell is breaking loose and we're not going to make it through. But God, we have to keep the faith and be patient because we will rise again from the ashes. We are to work at reformation until Jesus comes back and makes all things new. There will be setbacks, and that's to be accept, expected. Secondly, it's a multi-generational vision. Listen, it is crucial to the mission of God that we pass off the baton of our faith to our children. The U.S. men's sprinter team is a good example of exactly what, where we have failed in our discipleship in America. 
The U.S. men's team has a hard time passing the baton. They're all really fast runners, fastest in the world. But they don't pass off the baton, and they lose the race. The same has happened to us, our society, our country as a whole. We must raise Christian kids who keep the faith and understand that we are the city of God. We are a sacred city who live with God at the center and we're called to make our city look more like the coming city of God. That means we are playing the long game here. This is a 10, 30 year, 50 year plan. We might not see much fruit right now. But maybe our kids and our grandkids will. Right? I'm a bourbon connoisseur. I love bourbon. One of the things I love about bourbon is the process of it. It goes into, it goes perfectly clear into a new charred oak barrel and it sits there for years to become what? To become bourbon right? That's what we're doing. We're filling the whiskey barrels full of good distillate, but the bourbon won't be ready in 10 plus years. We're raising good godly kids to live like missionaries in this culture, but they're not going to be ready for 10, 20 years maybe. See, this is a vision that includes our children our, and their children. Think about this our kids and their kids all worshiping together around the same table. We want to reach the lost for Jesus Christ, but we have to reach our kids for Jesus Christ. If we only reached our kids and didn't reach the lost, we would be better off in 10 years than we are now from the past 10 years of craziness that the church have been, have been trying to reach the lost with crazy methods. Ask yourself, what would our city look like if we raised kids, God-fearing kids? What do I mean by that? They fear nothing but God. They don't fear the masses, they don't fear cancellation on Facebook and all these other things. They fear nothing but God. What if we raised God-fearing, Jesus-loving, gospel-centered children who loved where they lived and saw themselves as a part of the mission of God right here? They grow up in a gospel-centered church. They get a God-centered education and they put their roots down right here in the Quad Cities. Think about that. 10 to 20 years from now, like Joshua just showed us, our kids could be the teachers, the administrators, the city councilmen and women, the worship leaders, the pastors, the church planners, the entrepreneurs, the artists impacting our city for the sake of the gospel. The calling isn't just to get saved and to go to heaven when we die. The calling is to make this city more like the city of God that's on its way. For too long, we've sold some kind of American dream to our children. Come and give your heart to Jesus Christ and then go off to some godless educational institution where you learn some trade or you learn some craft. You learn how to get the American dream and make a lot of money. And then it doesn't matter where you live. Move away. It doesn't matter. As grandparents, we'll chase you around the country. We have lost the theology of place. You notice that Jesus of Nazareth 
Saul of Tarsus, county over country. It's a county over country vision. Let's think about this. In reality, we have very little to say in what happens in our country. And almost all the media is to get you foaming at the mouth about national issues that you literally can do nothing about. For two years, I'm going to get you foaming at the mouth so that you'll vote one way in two years. And then you realize, well, that didn't really do anything. Foam up some more. Here's the deal. I love our country. We can't do very, we can vote. We can't, there's not much we can do for our country. But we live here. The Quad Cities is big enough to be a strategic outpost for the sake of the gospel and yet small enough that we might just be able to make a difference. This is the vision that I believe the Lord is calling us to. And listen, I'm going to tell you, it's way bigger than any one of us can accomplish. In fact, if God is not in it, it's destined to fail. But if God is in it, nothing can stop it. Paul prays in Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If I get practical in the last few minutes, how are we going to shape citizens of the kingdom of God to live as culture shapers in the Quad Cities. One thing I know for sure, we have to aim at more than simple resistance to the negative cultural influences that we are experiencing in our culture. Parents, our job is to create dangerous children. They're arrows in our quiver. Our job isn't just to say, oh, I just don't want them to I don't want them to, to embrace the culture too much. I'm just going to protect them, right? No, we're to raise dangerous children that actually make an impact in the culture. We're not just trying to keep all the negative influences away from them so we create little soft children. If we want to change the culture of our city, we must begin by creating and cultivating good gospel culture, creating dangerous kids who know a real God who is dangerous and will change lives and go out and live in the city like it's true. An illustration. Think of ourselves in the middle of the Mississippi. It's kind of a gross illustration. I get it. Powerful current. That's culture. Culture is pushing us downstream, pushing our kids downstream. We don't want to just raise our kids who can just fight the culture just enough to, to not get swept downstream. We want to raise kids and we want to make disciples here that can actually swim upstream, that can actually make an impact in the culture. Now, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Again, 10, 20, 30, it's a long-term vision. But this is how societies change. This is what happened in the Reformation. This is what happened in the Great Awakening. This is what happened in when Rome fell. This is what happened in the early church. This is what God likes to do in moments of turmoil, but we have to have a vision to see it. We want to make disciples who go out into our world and make a real difference for the kingdom. That means 
we're going to need gospel-centered disciples working and training in at least five areas that I, off the top of my head, five areas in our county. One, reforming education. Education isn't just putting facts in somebody's head, it's teaching somebody what to love. Do you love yourself? Do you love God? Two, art and media. Art and media, stories shape souls. Stories capture people's imagination, captures their love, gets behind their, their, their intellect and inspires them to live a certain way. We need good Christian artists making good Christian music, making good Christian art, writing good Christian books, inspiring a generation of Christians to live for our King Jesus, to push back darkness in our city, in our county. Three, we need business leaders and nonprofit leaders. Four, we need people that are going to step into the dangerous world of city politics. Five, we are going to need church planters. This vision is so much bigger than us. It's a vision big enough, I believe, for our cities. This vision is going to take many churches working together. So we have to continue to plant churches here in the Quad Cities and the surrounding regions. Now, as I close, what's going to actually motivate us to do this? That's what's been missing. What's going to actually motivate? The kingdom of self. There's all, this is what our flesh is built on. You don't even almost need any motivation to, to build your life on you. What's actually going to get you to transfer your allegiance out of the city of man, out of the kingdom of self, and put it in the city of God and put it in King Jesus? There's only one thing that I know that will ultimately move the needle of your heart to live for the city of God and not the city of man. And that is when we see. See with our eyes, hear with our ears, know with our mind, feel with our heart that this is exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus literally moved into the neighborhood. Jesus, the eternal son of God, puts on flesh and moves into the city of man, moves into our human nature. And he lives a perfect life. He brings the city of God into the city of man and he shows exactly what the city of God looks like. And then he does the unthinkable thing. Like, we've lived for the city of God, or the city of man, I'm sorry, we've lived for the city of man at the contempt of God. And God is no trifle. God is no little magistrate. God is no little man. We've offended the eternal God of the universe, and when you offend the eternal God of the universe, you deserve eternal wrath. But what does Jesus do? He takes that wrath for us. He absorbs that wrath for us. He takes the consequences of our sin upon himself and he dies there so that now we can be made right with God. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to, so we're forgiven by, we're forgiven and then he sends the Holy Spirit to empower us to live differently in our world. To live like salt, to live like light, to live like the city of God, the sacred city. 
in the midst of the city of man. Think about Jesus. Jesus came, didn't assimilate. He kept his distinctiveness. He kept his uniqueness. He was salt. He was light. He did all of this to show us how we are to live in our world, in our city. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we can never attempt to live this way without first being saved by you. This is not a form of salvation, self-salvation. We are saved through the work of Jesus Christ and him alone. But your salvation is not just an individual event, but you make us into a community of people. You make us into a sacred city and you send us back out into a godless world with the Holy Spirit and a gospel that's big enough to bring renewal. Would you help us believe it this morning? Would you give us the faith that we believe our children, the gospel is good enough news that our children are going to believe it, that they're going to see it working in our life. They're going to tell from our life that we believe it and they're going to embrace it as their own. They're going to take the baton of faith and they're going to take this mission even forward in the next generation. God, we put our faith, we put our hope in you. Would you do this for our good, for your glory, and the good of our city? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.